Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court here in Washington. And joining me now from New York is co-host Natalie Rodriguez. How are you today, Natalie? Jimmy, I just feel like I'm trying to catch my breath. Uh, I feel like the news has been coming kind of fast and furious since our last episode. It's hard to even recap everything that's happened since the last we recorded on Thursday. There were short grants, there were arguments, there was an opinion this morning, and a whole manner of things that happened in between. So, I don't know, where's your head at right now as you try and make sense of the last week? Well, I think where we got to start is the president's been impeached again. Uh, right. <laughs> that happened that did last happen. Was that this week? <laughs> yesterday evening, afternoon, late afternoon. I don't know. Time is a fluid An concept, concept right now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah I, I, you know, I, I was kind of going through Twitter after it happened um, and couldn't help but notice a few comments about the chief justice and, and what role he might play and, and if he'll perhaps try to get himself out of this one <laughs> since, you know, it, it's kind of a... a unprecedented and unusual impeachment and that it will happen after he's uh, after president trump's out of office um so you know there's there's been some jokes which i uh, might actually have some kernel of truth that maybe uh you know he will try to a uh, chief just the chief justice will try to get himself out of it somehow or say because he's not needed trump will have been a a, a former president not a sitting exactly. president at that point and the question is does the Constitution require the Chief Justice pres- to preside over that trial, like when they when they're trying a sitting yeah. president? That's an interesting question. Um, you know, like with so many things um, <laughs> during the Trump uh, presidency, it's it's a it's a question of firsts, right? I don't think courts have confronted any of these novel constitutional questions, um, but uh, I suppose we'll find out soon. I think at least there's one thing he won't have to worry as much about, and that is. Contracting COVID-19 from some of these lawmakers who refuse to wear masks because we now know, thanks to reporting from CNN and SCOTUS blog, that uh, Chief Justice Roberts is among some of the justices to have received two doses of the coronavirus vaccine in recent days. So that should at least be something that, uh, you know, we should all be thankful for. Yeah, I'm happy to hear that. And uh, I hope, I, I know it seems, the reporting seems to suggest that, you know, not all the justices have gotten their two doses or been vaccinated. So I uh, hope that is on the way. hope they stay uh, healthy and safe. Yeah. I, when it comes to matters of, you know, the, the uh, personal medical care of the justices of the United States or even their security uh, protocols or procedures, you know, these aren't things that the court, you know, willingly shares. So, you know, we still don't know that much about it. Um, But let's talk about the things that we do know, and that's what the justices have been up to. Uh, The court made some news on Tuesday night with an order in an abortion case. Can you kind of catch us up with what happened in that case, Natalie? Yeah, and I think it was a fairly late evening order, although, again, time is is a fluid concept. Okay, late for me. (laughs) Uh, The court issued uh, an order allowing the FDA to resume enforcing a requirement that women visit clinics to obtain abortion-inducing medication. Uh, So just kind of a bit of a backstory, a Maryland federal court had blocked the requirement uh, this summer after the American College of Obstetricians and gynecologists sued, uh, stating that it posed an unnecessary COVID risk to doctors. Obviously, you know, at the pandemic, doctors are trying to do lots of telehealth visits and mm-hmm. just, you mm-hmm. know, if you don't need to go, 
They're trying to find a way around it, right? Um, This requirement, which was instituted in 2000, um, you know, requiring an in-person visit for the drug that does not have to be administered on a medical site. So you have to do the visit, but you don't necessarily have to take it while they are at the visit. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's the only one of its kind among the FDA's 20,000 or so approved drugs. So it was an unsigned order um, from the court that lifted this lower court stay, essentially. Um, But, you know, I I think it's worth noting that all three liberal justices said they would have denied uh, that move. Um, And Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan in particular, you know, wrote as Justice Sotomayor wrote a dissent that Justice Kagan joined in on that said, you know, the FDA hadn't properly explained why this one drug should have this requirement and that they hadn't shown there's been harm by this block since the summertime. Um, Justice Roberts did write a concurrence uh, basically, you know, briefly explaining why he agreed with lifting the stay with, you know, allowing the FDA to move forward. Um, and, and, and in that brief concurrence, you know, he just kind of put it to his, you know, we give the deference to the federal agency on this one. I think Chief Justice Roberts really wants to be seen as consistent on some of these COVID cases. You know, we're, we're just going to kind of take the government officials word for it we're not going to second guess their decisions and so he's trying to explain to people why you know he's he's voting kind of the same way in some of these religious challenges to COVID-19 restrictions as he is to you know obviously the FDA rules so that was a a pretty interesting decision that came out on Tuesday night I want to talk about the arguments that we heard um these were the first of the year of 2021 uh, and the Supreme Court heard three cases between Monday and Wednesday, and I want to focus on just two of them. Uh, the first one I want to talk about took place on Tuesday in a First Amendment case where none other than pop star Taylor Swift uh, made an appearance in the Supreme Court's record uh, from Justice Elena Kagan, who now I think we can all safely say is a Swifty. <laughs> who would have thought? <laughs> I honestly well we know she's on twitter coming. so we, we knew she was on twitter so she is plugged into the pop culture references uh but let me just explain so this case has kind of a difficult name that i'm not even going to endeavor to pronounce but it involves a lawsuit filed by two former students at a georgia state-run college who brought first amendment lawsuit against the college for essentially cracking down on them for you know, uh, evangelizing on campus grounds. They were handing out religious pamphlets and, you know, a a school official told them that they couldn't do that. So they file a lawsuit. um, But after the lawsuit's filed, the college does something interesting in that it changes its policies and creates these kind of free speech zones through which, you know, uh, students can evangelize and, and have other, you know, protected speech occur. And so the question for the courts became, was the lawsuit then moot now that the state or now that the college had changed its policies? And, you know, the lower courts agreed and dismissed the case as moot because of this, uh, the post-filing action uh, of the state-run college. But then the plaintiffs in the case came back and said, wait, no, we have this unresolved claim for damages in the case. But those damages weren't, you know, compensatory damages, the court said. They were only nominal damages. And nominal damages, rather than kind of Uh, relieving some harm like emotional distress or some other kind of compensation for someone's injury, nominal damages are more of like a symbolic uh, small sum to vindicate a legal wrong. 
And so the Supreme Court agreed to hear this case and resolve whether, you know, when the only issue that's left in a federal lawsuit is this issue of nominal damages, these small kind of de minimis sums, is that really enough to survive like a mootness challenge? And so that's what the court heard oral arguments on uh, Tuesday. And this is a long way of getting to this uh, Taylor Swift analogy, but Elena Kagan, Justice Kagan, she says, well, don't you remember that um, lawsuit that Taylor Swift filed recently against a radio producer who, or a radio host who had sexually assaulted her, and she was only claiming one dollar in damages. You know, isn't that kind of similar to what the students are doing here? And and why she's asking the lawyer for the college why it's okay that Taylor Swift was able to bring this claim for one dollar of damages, which is obviously symbolic and not actually compensating her for the sexual assault when the two plaintiffs in this case who had a similar claim for nominal damages are now unable to proceed with that claim because of mootness. Um, let, me and- give you, let, me, let me give you a case. I don't know what, what case, uh, who this cuts in favor of, you or um, uh, the petitioners, but I thought I'd ask it because it's the most famous nominal damages case I know of in recent times, which is a Taylor Swift sexual assault case. Do you know that one? Uh, vaguely, Your Honor. Yeah, you know, it was a few years ago, and she brought a suit against um, a radio host for uh, sexually assaulting her. And she said, I'm not really interested in your money. I just want a dollar. And that dollar is going to represent something, both to me and to the world of women who have experienced what I've experienced. And that's what happened. The jury gave her a dollar. Uh, and and it, was, it was an unquestionable physical harm. But she just asked for this one dollar to say that she had been harmed. Why? Why? Why not? Uh, a couple things, Justice Kagan. First of all, that sounds like compensatory damages. She may have only asked for a dollar of it, but she alleged clear compensable injuries, and so the jury could award that dollar in response. I thought um, you might say that, but then why isn't that the same as this? Um, uh, the petitioner here said he was harmed. He wasn't able to speak when he should have been able to speak. And, um, you know, whether it's hard to monetize or it's not hard to monetize, uh, he's just asking for a dollar to redress that harm. So it seems like Justice Kagan is concerned about the implications of a ruling here where, you know, people can't pursue these kinds of symbolic victories in courts when, you know, a legal a vindication of a legal wrong can actually probably be more important than the compensatory damages themselves, as was the case uh, in Taylor Swift's case. I think that's an intriguing point, especially I feel like we've seen, you know, a couple of cases now, not not sp- not really completely parallel to this case, but that involve like the mootness issue and when, you know, it right. should be mooted. Um, so I, I think that question is, is a really intriguing one for them to be tackling right now. Um, but that was not all for this week in terms of, you know, interesting arguments. Uh, Jimmy, you, you, you were listening into another one, I think, yesterday involving the FTC, which I swear this one's interesting, even though it involves the FTC. Uh, <laughs> but do you want to do you want to go go into that one? Absolutely, yeah. Don't be don't be dissuaded by the FTC's involvement in this case. It is, in fact, interesting. We're talking billions with a B uh, of dollars at stake in this case. The case is called AMG Capital Management LLC versus the FTC, and it involves the question of whether or not 
the Federal Trade Commission can pursue monetary damages when it goes to court. So this has to do with a provision of the FTC Act that allows the agency to file a lawsuit against, you know, a bad actor in court as opposed to going in-house through its administrative proceedings. And in recent years, this has become a central tool of the Federal Trade Commission to kind of root out you know, deceptive and unfair business practices in the market. And using this provision, this route of going to federal court, they've been able to obtain billions of dollars in recent years against defendants and you know, return that money to consumers. So this case asks whether or not they're actually allowed to do that. That is, whether they're allowed to obtain monetary relief when they go to court, or if the provision that allows them to go to court simply allows them to obtain an injunction against uh, you know, one of these defendants. Maybe it's a company that's accused of deceptive lending or some other type of unfair business practice. So you can imagine that it has pretty big implications for the FTC's toolbox, right? You know, is it able to extract, you know, restitution from some of these companies when it goes to court? Yeah, not not being able to do that, I think, would certainly weaken it. It stands in a lot of ways. Um, so, so how did it seem to play out in court, this argument? I think it was kind of a scary day for the FTC at the Supreme Court. I, I have to be honest, after listening to the oral arguments, it seemed like there was kind of an overwhelming skepticism that the FTC actually has the authority um, under the relevant provision of the FTC Act to extract monetary relief when it uses the, I'll, I'll call it the courthouse provision that allows them to go to actually a federal court as opposed to uh, pursuing the case through its administrative route. And that is because the, the, the provision at issue, Section 13B, it doesn't explicitly allow for monetary equitable relief it only spells out injunction so fine print right the fine print so even though this section 13b has been on the book since the early 70s 50 years roughly 50 years at this point go ahead how does how does it go 50 years without this coming up before (laughs) i just I don't understand. That's a really good question. And one that I think the FTC is happy to remind the justices of. You know, this has existed for 50 years. And now all of a sudden, this this authority is being challenged in court. But obviously, you know, close scholars of the uh, Supreme Court's statutory interpretation (laughs) <laughs> over the last 50 years. It's kind of a nerdy thing, but... We back love in the early things. Right. Back in the early <laughs> 70s, the justices had a completely different way of reading these statutes. You know, um, they wouldn't primarily look to the textualist method to see exactly what it is these statutes allow and don't allow. They would look to other things like committee reports or the overwhelming, overriding purpose of, um, you know, the lawmakers when they pass this law. And so now, 50 years later... You have this textualist argument that Section 13B only provides for an injunction. It doesn't provide for equitable relief. And so now you have a majority of justices on the Supreme Court that subscribe to these textualist philosophies of reading statutes narrowly and not reading into them expansive causes of action. And you saw that play out in court. Well, I guess I should say you know, on the court's remote, you know, telephonic argument stream, uh, this skepticism that they should be reading this statute in this way, Chief Justice Roberts kind of explained it nicely. He said, 
you know, back in the early 70s, we had kind of a freewheeling, and this is his word, freewheeling approach to reading statutes. Today, we have kind of a more disciplined way. And his view, obviously, is that today's more disciplined view kind of cuts against the FTC, and it's bad news for the agency. But he's wondering, you know, which should we use? Should we use the freewheeling approach since it was passed in the early 70s, or should we use today's kind of new disciplined approach? Uh, so, I mean, it's it was kind of a fascinating little microcosm into how the Supreme Court has changed over the years in how it does its basic work of reading statutes. It feels like Chief Justice Roberts' use of freewheeling is, uh, <laughs> is, is Kind quite, of a tell? It, 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 I, I feel like it's quite like a biting remark against former justices. Right. Um, just a little bit. That, I mean, that's probably as much as you're going to get from him. He's not very acerbic, if you will. He's a little more diplomatic than that. I thought it was interesting what Justice Breyer had to say. So on the one hand, he acknowledged that, you know, sure, the law seems like it precludes the FTC from extracting monetary equitable relief when it goes to court. However, he says, you know, the other side makes a really compelling argument about history and the history of lower courts continually upholding the authority of the FTC to pursue monetary damages under 13b and he says this really classic briar quote he says law isn't perfect courts make mistakes we make mistakes too and if we never say let bygones be bygones i mean we'll be here to marbury versus madison and beyond so it's like a total distillation of his whole approach to cases which is like let's just find something that works here you know so like i said it was it was it involved the ftc but i think kind of interesting nonetheless to say the least. Uh, so I'll, I'll be interested to see how this one plays out. Definitely. So we're almost there, but we're not quite up to speed on everything that's happened in the past week. Big news no. on Friday, right? Big news. Uh, yes. So uh, in terms of what more arguments we might see in the future, the court has decided to take up uh, two, I think, pretty hot button petitions from these conservative advocacy groups that are challenging California law Um that was requiring them to disclose donor information. So, you know, there's this law, it's requiring all charitable organizations to disclose their their donor lists, essentially. Um, And the groups are arguing that that's going to chill First Amendment rights. Um, So the groups particularly are Americans for Prosperity and the Thomas More Law Center. Um, You know, how this has come up, the Ninth Circuit has found that, you know, it's not a burden to them. the groups are obviously challenging that. And I, I think it brings up a really interesting issue uh, as to, you know, what type of an scrutiny, essentially, what, what the benchmark is um, that this this donor disclosure law should be held to. They're, they're arguing that it should be uh, held to a more demanding strict scrutiny standard than the Ninth Circuit uh, put it up against. So I think this is going to be an interesting one to watch for, you know, that, you know, very technical strict scrutiny standard issue. And also this is, you know, another big... A big deal. It's another big, you know, ideologically driven kind of suit that I think will be interesting to see what happens before this court. Especially, you know, in the wake of a decision like Citizens United, right, where you have kind of this deluge, if you will, of what, you know, critics will call dark money, you know, influencing the political process. Now, obviously, this involves charities and not uh, political organizations or PACs or anything like that. But you have seen kind of a groundswell of calls, especially, you know, 
among certain Democrats for the disclosure of some of these high-profile donors, especially to, you know, uh, conservative-affiliated organizations that maybe, you know, there's businesses or other entities that are just funneling money into here, and we want to be able to find out where that money is coming from. So and, you think- know, the big elections obviously get all the spotlight, but the, this this big, you know, dark money has grown so, so large that it, it funnels into a lot of smaller elections and a lot of judicial races from, you know, I know from, you know, Law 360 reporting that everyone should dig into it. I know we did a package on this, I, I feel, last year or the year before. And, it, you know, so that there's an interesting, you know, intersection here with the judiciary, too, because this, this affects the judiciary. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> one need only look into the lobbying disclosure databases to see how much money and how many organizations kind of uh, fight over pending judicial vacancies. And a lot of people want to know where that money is actually coming from. And so it's fascinating to see the intersection of First Amendment law with transparency laws for you know big money donors. So we shall uh, look forward to hearing that one come for oral arguments. But I think that about does it for this week, right, Natalie? Oh, I think so. Uh, you know, I we we joked about this this episode getting titled "Boom Boom Bam," but I, I think we've, <laughs> we've covered all it's the really booms and all the bams here. Yes, and we are less than a week out um, from the. Uh, next inauguration I, I took a drive yesterday the whole city's pretty much fenced off when at least when it comes to downtown so hopefully no major uh ruckus uh happens then uh we'll definitely be watching like the rest of our listeners as we kind of move into the second month of 2021 and hopefully it's a little bit less distressing than the first it's a weird weird year We'll, we'll see how, how this goes. I know you were saying there's something like, I don't know. Something, something off. Something I don't is, know. Something's off. Something's off. Well, when you figure it out, let us know. I will. All right. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, Natalie. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our contributing reporters, Jeff Overly, Daniel Tay, and Asha Glover. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please write us a review. 